I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. So glad to have you with us in this hour. And in this hour, an in-depth conversation with New York Times bestselling author and Dartmouth professor Jeff Charlotte on the powerful currents beneath the royal waters of a nation coming apart. As Charlotte sees it, the dimensions of American politics over the last decade have regressed into delusion, social division into distrust, distrust into paranoia and hatred into fantasies sometimes realities of violence that's a lot to unpack i'm glad i got the whole hour we got a lot to talk about one of america's finest reporters and essayists jeff charlotte joins us now to discuss his new text the undertow scenes from a slow civil war jeff good to have you on how are you sir Good, Tavis. Thanks for having me. Man, it's my great delight to have you on. Thank you. Glad we got the hours. I said a lot to unpack uh, vis-a-vis this text and, for that matter, all that we are witnessing in real time uh, in this uh, experiment uh, in democracy called America. Let me start with the subtitle of your text, if I can. Um, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. The title of the book is The Undertow, but the subtitle, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. I think I get it. Uh, I've gone through the book, of course, but uh, for those listening right now, unpack why that's the subtitle, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. You know, that title, that subtitle sort of began in the aftermath of January 6, 2021, mm-hmm. and I've been reporting on right-wing movements in the United States around the globe for 20 years, and while it's important to see the continuities, to see the oppression that's been a part of American life always, it's also essential to recognize the new formations of the threats. And uh, even though I sort of understood that something like January 6th could happen, I still watched it in horror like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And in the aftermath of that, I I saw a number of scholarly historians, academic historians, um, speaking of how the United States really was now closer to the conditions necessary for a civil war than it had been perhaps since since the Civil War. And that stunned me because I know scholarly historians to be mostly um, uh, cautious, Mm -hmm. appropriately so. They understand that history actually usually does move slowly. They understand the forces of inertia. So if they are speaking of civil war, uh, a term I wouldn't have used to describe the right 10 years ago, even though I knew the fringes that spoke of it, and I was hearing it not just from the fringes anymore, but from mainstream speakers within the right wing. I said, okay, I've got to take this seriously. And I started traveling around the country. And everywhere I went, I would speak to people of civil war, you know, what do you think about this idea of civil war? And the answers really varied. It was always yes, and either they looked forward to it. I'm speaking of those who subscribe to this movement of Trumpism or fascism, authoritarianism, whatever you want to call it. Or they said, well, it was sad, but it was necessary. Some believed it had started. Some believed it was coming. And I was looking at what I describe as a slow civil war because I think there are already casualties. Mm. There are already casualties. When we see a mass killing, those are casualties. Mm. When we see uh, uh, we see uh, 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 pregnant people around the country dying for lack of reproductive rights, bleeding out on tables, those are casualties. When we see right now, you know, armed men, AR-15s, lining up at this point on a weekly basis outside of, uh, of libraries, schools, hospitals, uh, that's a slow civil war. Mm. It, this is, they're, they're forming for battle. Um, so I think instead of saying could civil war happen, it, it's more useful to us as a frame for understanding but also for resisting 
to say we're in a slow civil war. We're in a cold civil war. And we have to recognize that if we're going to stop it from getting becoming a hot one. So um, I appreciate that response to that to that initial question, which leads me to ask the following. Uh, in this coming civil war or in this uh, slow civil war that we see rolling out, who are the combatants? Who's fighting whom, Jeff Charlotte? I think central to it, you know, we speak of this, we can speak of Trump and Trumpism. Uh, uh, I think we, we we really have to use the F word, which is fascism. Mm-hmm. And I will say, uh, years ago, I wrote a book about a, a, a right-wing Christian nationalist organization. They had actually, post-World War II, recruited uh, high Nazi war criminals. And even then, I said, look, they're not fascists, because fascism is a political it's a specific political formation. There's more than one kind of bad under the sun. That was mm-hmm. no defense of them to say they're not fascists. Uh, 2015, Trump comes down that golden escalator, and he brings with him a fascist aesthetic. It takes some time for him to gather up the, the, the white supremacists, the Christian nationalists, to bring together into this convergence of a movement that I think we can name as fascism. You can call it Trumpism, too, mm-hmm. the latest incarnation. So that's that's one side, and I do think it's a which side. On the other side, the rest of us, all of us. But there are people on the front lines. People of color are on the front lines. Queer folks are on the front lines. Um, uh, uh, women are on the front lines. Um, uh, those are the, the people who are being targeted first. I think, though, for I look at, uh, you know, my liberal friends who sort of say, oh, that's, that's terrible, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm talking about white liberal friends. So that's terrible what's <laughs> happening to those folks, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you mean it's what's happening to those folks? You think fascism is going to stop there? Mm. Fascism, fascism is, is, you know, it's, a, it's, it's just a, it's a black hole. It's, it swallows all right. Um, uh, it won't stop uh, at trans kids. It won't stop at uh, undocumented people. It won't stop at uh, uh, black bodies being policed into uh, uh, brutal violence, which has always been there. But we said, well, we're already there. No, there's mm-hmm. room for it to get worse. And I've been now for years talking to the people who are working hard to make it worse, who are arming up to make it worse. Um, as bad as it has been at times, uh, we can't fool ourselves into thinking, well, this is what America always has been. This is what America, unfortunately, has always been had the potential to be, um, and we're going to have to make big choices to avoid it. Just getting started in this hour, as I said moments ago, and you see uh, why I said it if you've never heard his voice before. Uh, he is America's, uh, one of our nation's finest reporters, uh, one of our most brilliant uh, and erudite essayists, and I am honored to have him on for the hour. A lot to talk about in this hour uh, with Jeff Charlotte and his new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, You are listening to Jeff Charlotte right now on KBLA Talk. This is one of those conversations that matter. I'm glad to have you um, along uh, for the ride in this hour. Uh, Our guest is Jeff Charlotte, uh, brilliant uh, writer, uh, reporter, uh, essayist, New York Times uh, bestselling author, in fact, and professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth College. He's author of the new text about uh, uh, the, uh, it's called uh, the, The Undertow, rather. The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow civil war it is about 
uh, the, the critical moment that we find ourselves trying to navigate right now uh, in America. Uh, again, the book is called The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. In case you've just tuned in, I started by asking Jeff to uh, define for us why, why he subtitled the text, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. And uh, now we've got an understanding of that. Uh, I'm curious, Jeff, um, as to how you would juxtapose uh, the following. And your book gets at this in a variety of ways, I think, quite beautifully. Um, this notion of American exceptionalism that we advance all the yeah. time, that we are that we are better than anybody in the world. Uh, God bless America. Apparently, God is uh, smiling on us and frowning on everybody else, I guess, around the globe. But we advance this notion all the time of American exceptionalism, but it's hard to juxtapose that notion with the fragility of our democracy. What say you about that imbalance, uh, as it were, if you see it that way? The dangerous delusion, and, and that comes, again, I would say, I'm going to have to say that really does come, especially from a white liberal place, which is to say that uh, with, you know, there's the right-wing version of American exceptionalism, but there's the white liberal version, which is uh, America, for all its imperfections, is the defender of democracy. Well, we know by all measures the political scientists use that we are no longer in the top ranks of democracy. In fact, we are now in that uh, territory, according to those sort of social science measures, uh, that puts us into a, a kind of oxygen-deprived space of, are we really democratic? Is that a fair term to describe us, or are we moving toward uh, autocracy? Mm -hmm. And we certainly have one party that is openly committed to that. But let me just say about American exceptionalism, and I think this is important for understanding the slow civil war, is that, yeah, there's one version of American exceptionalism that says, uh, we're the best. And there's another version that says we're the worst. And again, I, I think of I think of friends who, who who say, "Oh gosh, Europe must be laughing at America with its problems with Trump and all its guns." Mm. Well, tell me, is Russia laughing at America? Is Hungary with Viktor Orban? We live in a moment of a global fascist ascendancy, and we have to understand Trump, not just the Trump of America. But, you know, there's a Trump of the Philippines. There's, uh, uh, there was Bolsonaro, the Trump of Brazil. Mm -hmm. There is the Trump of Turkey. There's in Myanmar and Burma, there's a Buddhist monk who calls himself the Trump of Myanmar and has led a, a genocidal movement against the Rohingya Muslims. If we're going to struggle against this moment, we have to recognize and, and think in terms of solidarity. Uh, on a much broader scale than just sort of say like this is this is an American problem because I, I fear that that American exceptionalism also leads us into believing well this will surely pass mm -hmm. we just have to wait it out yes well that that that's that's my that's the issue that I've raised uh, more than once on in, in um, on this program Jeff it seems to me I don't know whether it's it's hubris um, uh, or or what but it seems to me that we have this view that because we are the United States of America that we couldn't possibly be on the precipice of a democracy imploding. Uh, but my read of history suggests to me that every empire in the history of the world at some point has its comeuppance. Every empire uh, at some point has its reckoning. But it seems to me that for whatever reason, we are blinded uh, even by the historical, uh, the, the march of history, uh, as it were, and we don't see ourselves in that particular vein. That could never happen here. We see ourselves outside of history, and you heard it so clearly on, on January 6th. 
I sent her the book. One of the central figures is a woman named Ashley Babbitt, mm-hmm. 35-year-old white woman, Air Force veteran, who on January 6th uh, led a charge uh, into what's called the Speaker's Lounge in the Capitol, climbed up through a broken window. Uh, her, She's become the martyr of the movement. You can hear Tucker Carlson tell you that she was unarmed. She wasn't. The cover of my book is a picture of the knife she was carrying. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was... She was shot, right? Um, but what did she think? What did what time did she think she was shot? We can say she was shot at a certain hour on January 6, 2021, or we can go to the rallies that now occur in her name around the country where they fly flags with her likeness, hand out medals and challenge coins with her likeness, wear T-shirts. She was killed in 1776. They say she was our Crispus Attucks. First man killed in the revolution, leaving aside the fact that Crispus Attucks was killed in, I believe, 1771 and was a black Wampanoag man, an mm. indigenous man. Um, uh, a white woman has displaced that. And so that's a way of thinking of ourselves outside of time, right? We're, we're in American time, which is for these, for the fascist worldview, separate from the ordinary flow of history, where democracy by the way, it's not something that you have, right? It's something that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we speak of preserving democracy and it always makes you think, what are you going to do, put it in a jam jar? Um, you can't preserve <laughs> democracy. You may have had democracy yesterday, but you don't have it today unless you get up and do it. Yeah, I love that. that that's why he's one of our uh, most erudite essayists. Um, he's just dropping dropping bars. These lines are killing me. Um, but I, I love uh, talking to Jeff Charlotte. Let, let, me, let me come to something else. Is at the epicenter of your book. You, you don't quite say it this way. I want to be more blunt. Um, but I want to get your temperature on this. Uh, and since you mentioned Crispus Attucks, it's a perfect segue. So it seems to me that we are living in a moment where the folk who are most threatening this democracy, as I prefer to call it, an experiment in democracy, the folk who are most threatening that, Jeff Charlotte, are not the immigrants, not the blacks, <laughs> not even the terrorists. The persons who are most threatening the future of this democracy are the good white folk. And that's hard, I think, in conversations like these folks even wrap their brains around that it ain't the immigrant. It ain't the Negroes. It ain't the Latinos. It ain't the terrorists. It's the good white folk in this country who are threatening uh, to do the greatest harm, not just threatening, but indeed are causing the greatest level of harm to this experiment in democracy. How do you process that? Because it's a hard, that's a hard fact, a hard reality for folk to wrap their brains around in conversations like these, it seems to me. You know, I, I, I begin the book. Look, the book is about what I call the Trump scene, and it's scenes from a slow civil war, but I couldn't stand to begin it in, in horror and end it in horror. So I begin and end with these, these the, what I think of as hope notes. And, mm-hmm. and, and so it begins, unlikely, of places with Harry Belfonte, right? Harry Belfonte, and, you know, listeners know Dayo. Sure. They like come and they want to come home, right? And some folks, I sang that in elementary school. I didn't know that that was a radical song. I didn't know that that was a freedom song. And I got to go spend a lot of time with Harry and, and write about that. And I begin with, I begin there because he gives us some hope. He's in the long struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, Harry, who played such an important role in the civil rights movement in the 90s, he's still mad as hell, right? Because he knows that that movement that he was so instrumental in, uh, he lives in the grief for his friend Martin, and he lives in the grief for the movement that did not achieve anywhere near all that it hoped for, and yet the struggle is long. But also he gives us the diagnosis that then guides me through the book, um, uh, which is what he calls the minstrel act of American life, mm-hmm. right? Corking up, blackface, um, uh, uh, taking uh, 
taking that of another and then erasing the other, right? So when I think of, for instance, um, uh, the move to fight what they call critical race theory, um, and I think, too, also uh, my friend Anthea Butler, a great historian in a book called White Evangelical Racism, mm-hmm. she calls the promise of whiteness. The promise of whiteness is that white supremacy holds out this idea of whiteness so that even people of color can join. I think of Nikki Haley, a woman of color, recently said uh, 90% of America's kindergartners are under the control of critical race theory. I'm like, really? They're teaching advanced law school theory in kindergarten? These are some smart kids. That's great news. <laughs> um, uh, but And here's a woman of color speaking the language of white supremacy, which is the oldest poison. Ashley Babbitt, Ashley Babbitt, when I, I knew what this book was going to be when I saw Ashley Babbitt killed on January 6, 2021. And we saw the hands of the police officer who shot her and they're the hands of a black man, Lieutenant Michael Byrd. As soon as I saw that, as a student of American history, as a student of American mythology, as a white man in America, subject, you know, uh, infected by the white supremacy that has just been in the air that we all have to breathe for so long. I knew what they were going to do with that, because that's one of the oldest stories in America. That's the lynching story. Mm-hmm. That's the lynching story. Innocent white womanhood. And right away, they started making that martyr myth of Ashley Babbitt, aging her backwards. She's 35. No, she's in her 20s. No, they decide she's 16. She's a little white girl killed and they start making Lieutenant Michael Byrd, they start making him literally physical, physically bigger than he is, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is, there's a 1915 film called Birth of a Nation, <laughs> the template of so much of Hollywood, right? The first film shown in the White House, 1915, based on a novel called The Klansman, as in the Ku Klux Klan. And the plot catalyst, a white woman, an innocent white woman is chased by a black man and she leaps to her death, causing provoking, as it were, the Klan to ride out in its lynching fury. This is, this is, if it's not the American story, it's at least a American story. And we see it playing out over and over again. And what happened on January 6, 2021, is that story that is always simmering in American life moved into centrality. And so when I speak of Trumpism, I don't mean Trump alone. I mean, you can even have Nikki Haley speaking this language of, uh, of white supremacy. This is the promise, what Anthea Butler calls the promise of whiteness. Yeah. And it's devastating, and it's the poison, and it's the battle. I've got two minutes before news, traffic, and sports. We'll continue, of course, on the other side for the rest of the hour. And I want to talk about um, how you would define, how you see um, our national psyche. What is the state of our national psyche in this present moment, in the 90 seconds I have left, um, Harry Belafonte, a dear friend of mine, I've known him for years. We were talking about him yesterday with one of our regular contributors, Connie Rice, who also knows Mr. B quite well. Um, but what, what was it like for you uh, to spend as much time as you did with Harry Belafonte? Yeah, I, I'll tell you, it was it, it was an education for uh, a, a white man who grew up in a little working class white town singing the banana boat song with a bunch of white kids, not understanding that this is a song that Mr. B learned on the docks in Jamaica that he sang when, uh, you know, I tell the story in the book, a story that he tells of, of going down to Mississippi uh, with Sidney Portier, <laughs> mm-hmm. bringing 
but the sort of the suitcase of cash that the uh, of Freedom Summer needs to continue. And uh, going with Sidney Poitier saying, well, the Klan will be afraid to kill two very famous black men. <laughs> they weren't afraid. They came after them, and they made it with their lives, and they get there, and the activists are all waiting, and they start to sing in Deo, and Harry changes it up because that's what he says. You know, the words change. You can make the words your own. Does freedom come? Freedom going to come soon, right? Mm. Uh, that's what spending time with Harry to me, uh, and uh, I've always had as – there's the undertow of fascism, but there are other currents. There's the cross currents of the long struggle. And a man that old, still angry now, as you say, as I, or as I know, and you know him as mm-hmm. a friend, he says, what he says is so beautiful. He says, where your anger comes from is not as important as what do you do with it? What do you do with it? You sing your song and you give it away. Yeah, you sing your song. And as you, I'm sure you heard him say many times, he says, Tavis uh, and Jeff, uh, the, 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 the mission here is to get the world to sing your song. That's the goal here, right? To sing your song and to get the world to sing your song. We did a tribute to Harry Belafonte yesterday, now age 96. And here comes Jeff Charlotte the day after, talking about his experience with Harry Belafonte. And of course, as he mentioned earlier, his conversations with Mr. B are central to the framing of this text. The book is called The Undertow Scenes from a Slow Civil War. We are talking with the author of that book, Jeff Charlotte, on KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate loses and love wins. Hate loses and love wins. Uh, you are listening to KBLA Talk 1580, where we believe that. Our guest in this hour is Jeff Charlotte. He is a New York Times bestselling author, professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth, uh, and uh, has spent the last decade reporting on the growing threat of fascism across these United States. His new book is called The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. And he argues such in the text that we are in the midst right now of uh, uh, a, a slow uh, civil war unfolding uh, in this country. And we've been unpacking a great deal of uh, what's in his text. Um, I said uh, moments ago I wanted to ask this, and so I will now, Jeff Charlotte, and that is how you would define um, uh, how you uh, are, are sensing what the national psyche is uh, at the moment. Yeah. I think, I mean, if I was really to name the undertow, I think it is grief. Mm. I think it is grief. And some of that grief is legitimate and some of it is not. But the way I look at grief, grief unprocessed, unmourned, curdles, and it curdles into rage and to hate. And, uh, you know, there's a paragraph in the book I sort of described some of the folks who are in this kind of white supremacist movement of fascism. I I don't know if I can share this with you, but I I would say they've lost a lot, right? Such victims, and that's in quotes, right? Because they see themselves, white grievance is always seeing itself as the victims of the very violence it perpetrates, feel themselves drawn together, not by whiteness. They don't see themselves as drawn together by whiteness, but by that of which it is made, by their belief in a strong man and the desire for an iron-fisted God and their love of the way guns make them feel inside and their grief over COVID-19 and their denial of COVID-19. And their loathing of systemic as descriptive of that which they can't see, can't hold in their hands and weigh, and their certainty. And it, it goes on, and they draw these stories, and they speak of fairness in the past. So there's the grief, right, of white privilege. Some people feel, like Ashley Babbitt, that uh, the do, um, that uh, she's like, I voted for Obama twice, mm-hmm. and yet uh, still somehow, it, didn't that end racism? Why do I have to still talk about it? That was her thinking, right? Mm-hmm. They experience that as loss. That's grief. Now, grief unprocessed, and that processing might be, hey, my grief isn't legitimate. 
But there's also the grief. I think fascism has been accelerated massively by the pandemic, uh, by COVID-19, by a million and many more dead um, that we have not properly mourned. And by all the, you know, I think, too, of how many fascists spoke to me of George Floyd. And that was so fascinating. I'm talking about white fascists. Mm -hmm. Spoke to me about George Floyd. And there are those who, who celebrated his death. They're out there. But there's a lot who would say, well, that was wrong what happened to that man. But what about what happened to me? Right? Mm. That's the narcissism. Mm. The narcissism of whiteness, the, which is a way of cutting off the potential of solidarity, which is to say you may have experienced loss in your life. And the Floyd family experienced the most terrible loss, right? And it's the isolation of grief that does not come into the solidarity of mourning. And I think that is the psyche that we are in now. Yeah. Um, and we've got to mourn. We've got to move through it yeah. if we're going to, if we're going to have any hope. I want to talk about the, uh, about white grievance and, uh, or white grievance put another way, white grievance vis-a-vis -vis black grievance. I want to talk about that in a second here. So put a pin in that for the moment, but I'm struck by your comment. Now I've not quite heard that before, uh, I'm just curious, these white fascists that you've been talking to for the last decade or so, why would anybody mourn, not mourn, celebrate, to your word, why would anybody celebrate the murder of George Floyd? So there's two kinds, right? There's okay. the plain old neo-Nazis, right? You mm -hmm. know, with the swastika tattoos. And, and they're out there, of course. We all know that, and I've met them. They are not, they are not what's powering Trumpism. They are mainstreamed by Trumpism, but they are not the, the multitude. The multitude are those who frown upon such folks, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, how do they come to celebrate that? Well, all you need to do is look at that flag that we may, you may have seen. It's an American flag, but it's uh, stripped of color except for one blue stripe down the middle. It's the Blue Lives Matter flag. Mm -hmm. And there's some debate over whether or not this is an anti-Black Lives Matter flag. I can settle that because I tracked down the guy who made it, and I interviewed him. And he said, I made it as an anti-Black Lives Matter flag. <laughs> you know, this is not a question, right? And some people say, well, but I've seen black police officers fly the flag. There's that promise of whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. There's the gravitational force of violence and authority, right? But I think those people, they can celebrate the death of George Floyd because they have convinced themselves, you know, one of the great lies of racism is the kind of colorblindness. I don't see color, right? Right. Anyone who tells you don't see color is seeing it very sharply, mm. right? And using it as a weapon. Um, and I think they are celebrating the death of George Floyd. They say, I am absolutely against racism, but I am for law and order. Um, these are the folks who want a wall on mm -hmm. the southern border. These are the folks who want a Muslim ban. These are the folks who, who screamed with joy at the Trump rallies I went into when Donald Trump said, you know, when they arrest somebody, he said to the police, I want you when you, you know, you're moving them into the car and you got your hand on their head. I want you to bang their head into the door. Right. Mm. Um, and they just screamed with joy at the idea of police brutality. Mm. They would say to me again and again, Trump says what we all want to say. And then we see some of the killers like Daniel Perry, that man in Texas now is about to be uh, pardoned by Greg Abbott for killing a Black Lives Matter protester uh, from they, what he's doing. And he's about to become a martyr and a folk mm -hmm. hero of, of the right. He did, they say, what they all want to do, but yeah. don't do. Yeah. The, murder, the murder is coming to the surface. Mm. Um, I'm the first to tell you, and this audience certainly knows this, that I, I still believe that racism is the most intractable issue in this country. 
And having said that, I'd also tell you that I believe there are some legitimate white grievances. Uh, as a black man, my entire Absolutely. yeah, as a white as a black man, my entire life, I've been black my whole life. I know that there are legitimate black grievances. So here's the question: You wrote the book, um, the undertow scenes from a slow civil war. How do you read the difference, Jeff Charlotte, between legitimate black grievance? or legitimate white grievance, uh, or put another way, the response to either? Well, I would, I would put it this way. All right? well, I, I said absolutely. Uh, there are white people with legitimate grievances. There is no legitimate white grievance in mm-hmm. my book, right? Okay. Okay. But, you know, when we speak of, like, is fascism powered by race or class, the answer is yes. When we speak <laughs> of it as a, as a race, class, or gender, the answer is yes. Over on the left, they've got intersectionality. Fascism has an intersectionality, too. And I look at someone like Ashley Babbitt, uh, who, um, you know, her, she, she ended up taking out a bad loan for her pool cleaning business. This is a woman, you know, signed up for the Air Force at age 17 because of 9-11. She's just a kid. And she ends up eight, eight deployments, two uh, theaters of war. She's two war generations deep in America. That's a grievance. And she's now suddenly got a loan that is going to destroy her business. 169% interest. That's a grievance. That's a grievance. But along comes Trump, and he says, hey, you know what the problem is? Those brown people coming over the border 15 Mm -hmm. minutes south of you. And she lacks the structural language. I think of a woman I met at a Trump rally in Florida, uh, Diane G., white woman raised in uh, Church of the Foursquare Gospel, left it behind. Her father ran a, a kind of orphanage in Haiti, to which she was very dedicated. She looks at what the Clintons did in Haiti, and that was a project that, that ran so afoul that even Bill Clinton himself said it was a devil's bargain. Mm-hmm. But she lacks the structural language of neoliberalism and economics and so on. So what does she conclude? Well, she, she goes to QAnon. She goes to conspiracy theories. She says, the Clintons are, are eating children, literally. Mm. Um, she starts uh, trafficking and racist tropes. So much of that grievance that these people have, they're casting about for the language to, under, to explain their very true and legitimate hurt. And along comes fascism to say, here, here's a story. Yeah. Lean back into this. This is an old story. You'll know it once you start telling it and listening to it. You know, for a moment there, uh, Jeff, um, I thought we were on, uh, had two divergent, uh, uh, t- uh, had divergent opinions. That is to say, when you made that distinction between white grievance and white folk who have grievances, I thought we were going to split company in that regard. Now that I hear your response to it, we're on the same page, just said differently. My point was, and your, my point is your point, which is that however you define it, white folk with grievances or white grievance, their conclusions are all wrong. They end up at the wrong place. Uh, based on uh, however one defines that particular grievance. So I, I appreciate the, the distinction uh, that you've made. Uh, we're talking with Jeff Charlotte uh, about his new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. We'll continue with Jeff Charlotte when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. The righteous range, and don't be afraid to say what you see. For KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. He's Jeff Charlotte. He's our guest in this hour. His book is called The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Uh, earlier, Jeff, you referenced, um, which I think is is beautiful. You you referenced these sort of hope notes. I love that phrase, hope notes, uh, in your in your text. Um, we were in a conversation the other day on this program. Uh, have been a few times uh, over the last year or two, uh, talking about the distinction 
between optimism and hope. They are not the same thing. I don't need to unpack that for one of your intellect and brilliance. But optimism and hope are not exactly the same thing. Um, so you have these notes in your book that really aren't optimism notes. They're hope notes. Um, why hope notes? You know, I come to my understanding of hope, and I, I, I know he's been your dear friend from uh, writing years ago and getting to spend a lot of time uh, with the great Cornell West. Mm-hmm. And uh, teaching me that hope is not, you know, hope is not what we experience when, hey, we have reason to think things are going to come out okay. That's right. Um, uh, that's optimism, right? Mm-hmm. Hope is comes from the place of despair, the way he put it in the Christian context, just recent past, right? It's the long Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. That's right. Right? When you have Christ crucified, and, and wait a minute, you thought he was a Messiah, and here's that long Saturday, and here we are living in that long Saturday, Right. So that's how I came to understood hope. And I knew I have a young child. I have a, a young child, a young queer child who looks at the world. How do I tell them not to be paranoid when they are being criminalized in 20 states? Um, when their school is being sued by a powerful family that wants a list of names of all the queer kids. And we've seen in history what happens when people draw up lists like that, right? How do I tell them? I can't give them optimism, and I can't give them cheap grace. So the hope notes of the book, Harry Belfonte at the end, and I, from the beginning of this book, I knew what the last line was. It's a line from a, a guy named Lee Hayes, Forgotten. Have you ever heard If I Had a Hammer? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to sing in elementary school, another one of those songs. It was saccharine and <laughs> Peter, Paul, and Mary, and then sweet. And if I had a hammer, I'd build a treehouse or something. No, if I had a hammer, <laughs> first performance of that was with the great baritone Paul Robeson in Peekskill, New York in 1949. And... Uh, they were the, the peak scale folks were so outraged that they called him the Russia loving Negro baritone was performing there. That was, that was the headline in the paper that they had a massive riot supported by police power, a use of air power, New York State police helicopter attacking Lee Hayes, Paul Robes and Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger. Lee Hayes, this man who, who contributed so many of these songs, um, he wasn't always brave. And I'm not interested in the folks who are always brave. I'm not always brave. Mm. Uh, but he talked about the hope notes. He talked about one such incident, uh, like like Harry Belfani driving through, in this case, the Arkansas night, being being chased by gun thugs, and he and the union organizers he's with are singing hymns. And he says, for a while, it was possible not to be scared even. That's the last line of the book, and there's a spoiler, but I was writing toward that all along. For a while, it was possible not to be scared even. Because that line acknowledges the fear is real. You don't have to pretend the fear is not there. You don't have to pretend, I'm sure it will all work out. Because if you're sure it'll all work out, you won't do anything. And I can't tell my kids that. I can tell them that I'm going to struggle with all that I have. I'm going to tell them that there are good people, stronger and smarter than me, who are going to struggle with all that they have. Um, and that for a while, it may be possible not to be scared even. That, to me, is what I, I, I mean by a, a hope note. You're listening to Jeff Charlotte. On KBLA Talk 1580. Gillette. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Jeff Charlotte on KBLA Talk 1580, author of the book The Undertow Scenes from a Slow Civil War. I think I want to close, uh, Jeff, where we began this conversation almost an hour ago. Um, with the line um, that I um, uttered uh, relative to your text about the fact that over the last decade, reaction has morphed into delusion, social division into distrust, 
distrust into paranoia, and hatred into fantasies, sometimes realities of violence. That is the nation uh, in late modernity uh, where we currently reside. And I want to close on this, you know, a, a hope note, as you would as, as you would call it. Um, but this this phrase you used earlier in our conversation that we have to create uh, a frame for resisting. How do we find ourselves? How do we create a frame for resisting in the months and years to come? I think we look forwards and backwards and sideways, and I think that's part of why I go back to Mr. B. Harry Belfonte to recognize that the struggle is long, to recognize that, look, we've been defeated before, uh, and we will be defeated again. One of the central lies of fascism is inevitability, right? Mm. The idea that this is coming. But it's not true. There is no such thing as inevitability. Um, we have to engage in the kind of imagination that we have had at moments of, of our life. And we also have to resist. And here's the key thing. I would say this is my, my, my prescription for how we can start to develop this imagination. There's this language of crisis, right? Mm -hmm. The language, the crisis of democracy, uh, the, the climate crisis. I'm going to reject that language, not because I don't think the situation is dire, but because crisis suggests the end, right? Trump loves that. He calls it now the final battle. The struggle is long. Look, the climate's not coming back to the way it was. The country is not going to be like it is pre-Trump. We're not going to somehow resolve that happy ending ever after. We're going to have to make something new that we can't yet imagine. I write in the book, I, look, I'm not the one to write these songs. I'm writing this book for my children uh, to help others say, here's the situation. Here's the concrete evil around us now. Now let's think, how do we, how do we, we can't, <laughs> a children's book that I quote in the book, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, we've got to go through it. Yeah. How do we go through it? Mm. And yet I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, and I'm wondering uh, aloud here, uh, how we navigate our way through it when it seems to me that we have in this moment a poverty of imagination, Jeff. We do, yeah. I, I agree, and I think that's one of the points of the book is, to compel us to, to contend, you know, we think of imagination as always a positive term. Well, there's good imagination and there is a wicked imagination. Mm -hmm. Fascism has an imagination, too. That movement, and it is a movement, is is got a lot of horrific imagination right now. And, you know, uh, I'll speak politics now. Uh, Chuck Schumer, I don't think of him as a a man of profound imagination. Uh, um, Joe Biden, hey, I'm glad he's there. I'm going to vote for him again versus Trump. But this yeah. is not a guy who is a, a dreamer, a storyteller. Uh, maybe these guys are placeholders. Uh, hold on. But we need to be thinking bigger. Again, I have to say, I have to confess, um, I, don't, I don't think I'm that person. I think of myself as, like, I'm trying to, to hold on yeah. to give my kids a chance for all of us to give our kids a chance yeah. um and so that's why i'm open you know i'm an all hands on deck person when it comes to fascism sure. i will work with anybody who's opposed to fascism and i'm open to all the ideas i don't think we need to be fighting between ourselves right now on nope. the left you referenced cornell west earlier in this conversation i was with him the other day and uh he and i said to each other as we often do uh, that we never let misery have the last word. We never let misery have the last yeah. word. Um, Jeff Charlotte's book is called The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, New York Times perennial bestselling author. 
professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth. Once again, the text is called The Undertow Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Jeff, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely, sir. All the best to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Likewise, Tavis. Thank you so much. Such an honor. Thank you, sir. Hour three of Tavis Smiley. After news, traffic and sports on KBLA Talk.